0: Welcome to The Mentor List, a source of sound advice with your host, David Lewis. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference.
1: What is precious, what's really important, and then putting some boundaries there.
0: The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List.
1: Hello and welcome to today's show. Today we're here in the heart of Melbourne at YBF Ventures, speaking with former YBF Ventures CEO Stuart Richardson. This interview will take us from the Royal Australian Air Force across to Stanford and then back to Melbourne, where we're founding YBF Ventures, which, as I mentioned, is where we are today here at YBF Ventures here on Burke Street. Stuart will also talk us through another business, Adventure Capital, which he is a founding partner of and he's now actively managing. So we'll get a behind the scenes tour of venture capital and venture debt. Stuart and his many, many, many interests see him very well networked and with a remarkable track record of founding, investing and just simply helping the startup community, particularly here in Australia and Melbourne. And if that wasn't enough, Stuart is also an active ambassador and member of the Van Houston Mentors, along with some of Australia's best and brightest. So needless to say, he's immaculately tailored in business and style. So I hope you enjoy today's conversation here at YBF Ventures with the Stuart Richardson. Stuart Richardson, welcome to The Mentor List.
0: Thanks for the opportunity to be here with you.
1: Well, thanks for bringing me down to, where are we? Corner of William & Burke here at YBF and the new York Butter Factory Ventures facility. And it's just amazing.
0: Yeah, look, it's uh, albeit only pretty much a a long stone's throw from the original York Butter Factory we started uh, way back in 2011. It's amazing how much we've been able to to, to do in a relatively short space of time and how far the entrepreneurial ecosystem has, uh, has come.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, really looking forward to sort of Jumping in because I know your roles recently changed, and I'm, yeah, I'm just sort of dying to sort of follow your career path through. And I guess you're you're a man who's definitely moving and shaking up the finance markets and the venture markets here in Melbourne. So I might just sort of throw it out. So for those that haven't heard of you, Stuart, maybe you could give us a bit of. <laughs> Give us the story, uh, if you
0: will. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, yeah, what, uh, what parts to include and what parts to exclude is always uh, always a challenge. But know, yeah, there's always good bits and bad bits, and that's really what makes a, a colourful and, and interesting life. But I started life in country Victoria. I uh, you know, grew up in the country town of Stahl. More famous for the store gift than yep. really for anything else. Although uh, Harold Mitchell, the founder of Mitchell's Communications Group, was actually a Sawmiller's son uh, from store many a decade ago. And uh, and certainly there seems to be almost an emerging uh, like mafia of uh, of tech people that are that are coming through as well. But we can get back to that on another another sort of time. I um, was privileged enough, I guess, to have a, a bit of a dream growing up to be a, a fast jet pilot and sort of set my my sights and trajectory on uh, on that. And i was successful to to create escape velocity to leave the country town of stall and uh, and join the air force and go through the australian defense force academy the australian defense force academy was fantastic i got the opportunity to study aerospace engineering from there uh, it uh, was a sort of one of my first disappointments in that uh, i uh, was injured during my training there and ended up ultimately being medically discharged and not able to pursue neither a career as a pilot nor as a i guess a fast jet uh, pilot and an officer in the air force so right. i guess in entrepreneurial parlance we'd call that our first first pivot <laughs> the, the market told me that, that my product wasn't to yep. fit in that particular you know story so being uh, i guess you know still young and uh, and probably fairly ambitious. I uh, also thought I probably knew a little bit but started a consulting company pretty much straight out of, uh, I guess, university. Wow.
1: Because so, the defence is really quite accommodating in terms of, I guess, investing in you and your, your learning and your training as well, uh, I, I guess. It, so is that where you've done sort of your engineering? I know you've done sort of some engineering study at, at university. Was that through the Defence Force or?
0: Yeah, so I I did the engineering degree, so the Bachelor of Aerospace Engineering degree through the University of New South Wales as part of ADFA and then also did a Master's of Engineering Science and Management uh, there also through University of New South Wales just six months after I finished my first undergraduate degree. You know, alongside that, obviously, it's a reasonably heavy course load to to do engineering, but uh, you're also put through your paces as to leadership and and management training and probably some of the, the best in the world, you would say. Definitely, management and leadership paradigms are, uh, are definitely, uh, I guess, forged originally within the, the military domain. Although I think that this new world is demanding that our approaches do, do change. But uh, investing in education is, was definitely something that I, uh, I did and, and I did focus on and was uh, was reasonably successful at. And I guess that really kind of uh, culminated when I uh, took, I guess, uh, some time off and went to study at Stanford in uh, in 2009 as uh, a as Somewhat of a, a mid career break or sabbatical, and to study Stanford Graduate School of Business's flagship program, the, the Stanford, Engineer, Stanford Executive Program. Fantastic. And just,
1: just you've sort of piqued my interest, and we'll get to Stanford because I want to sort of dig into that as well. But if I was to break into your house now, would your bed be immaculately made? And therefore, the disciplines of the defence force are sort of living true today. Like is that still a habit that you have?
0: I must admit that yes, that's uh, <laughs> you would you would, would find a uh, quite clean home. Yeah. I guess I really do like you know the sanctuary of, of home, and to have that looking uh, you know tidy, presentable, to be able to be enjoyed is really really important. But uh, you know you, you make a really interesting point in that those disciplines and the start to my career that the mi- military provided me was second to none. It's an absolutely tremendous way to, to to start the foundations of my career, and definitely build on uh, I guess this, the early skills that I had, perhaps that we skipped over, where uh, where I worked with my uh, my father's IT business, uh, who uh, I guess is my entrepreneurial inspiration.
1: Fantastic, and, and is this where you were doing the consulting? Because we sort of skipped skipped some of that as well to get to Stanford. So this so, is in the IT business.
0: Well, I guess whilst I was actually at Adfa, I uh, simultaneously ran the 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 internet or the web practice because in at Adfa they had fantastic infrastructure. One of those things being a T one connection. So whilst everybody else was rolling uh, dial up connections I was able to actually uh, you know do an enormous amount so uh, I was actually uh, creating and publishing websites from Canberra all across Western Victoria and making a nice uh, nice tidy side living um, but uh, no, the the consulting business I started out of uh, out of actually university effectively or after I, I finished with the military you know that was uh, yeah, very focused on high stakes and uh, highly complex projects that the defense and associated organizations ran so working on things like command and control systems, satellite systems, major capability initiatives, initiatives such as APEC 2008, which was hosted in Sydney, and how that actually came uh, came together, and obviously was delivered with obviously Australia working with numerous uh, allies and foreign nations, and uh, and I guess through that experience, I was able to actually uh, learn an enormous amount about the machinery of government around you know the way in which you know warfare is uh, is executed upon. And I guess, uh, you know, understand some of what uh, what has come to light with, uh, with the revelations from Snowden and others.
1: Mm. I know we sort of started talking before we, we started recording about journey having a genesis. And I'll be interested to sort of hear because, you know, I've got some insight into what you're doing these days and just listening to sort of how you started out. I'm like, oh my God, what the hell did you do? So, so like how if you sort of transition and maybe stanford's got something to do with it but what was sort of the thinking behind you know why you'd go over to the u.s and maybe you can share with some of the listeners about you know what life on campus was like and where well, yeah, how was stanford
0: yeah, look, well, I guess in terms of just the inspiration, perhaps then, you know, what got me to, 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 Stanford. So my first consulting business uh, was quite successful. So we grew triple digits year on year for seven years straight. But along that journey, I, um, I sort of found towards the, the sort of, you know, years five, six and seven that, the professional services was perhaps not as nourishing for me in terms of a business model as, as that which I thought was, was available and, and was that, that I actually really wanted to, uh, to continue to drive passionately you know into. And I guess it's sort of you know what I'd started to realize running a high growth business was, was that I really enjoyed the process of creativity. I really enjoyed the process of creating and leading um, you know teams to, to do extraordinary things. But what I was missing was the ability to actually take ownership in what was being produced. So you know even though we were delivering capability or outcomes, I didn't actually have an ownership ongoing in the underlying assets so like you go and say you're going to build a house you tend to actually take ownership of that house at the end you know that was really what was missing so it was sort of that app you know the asset side or the you know creating an owning side that uh, that i felt was missing and and that really sort of put me on a path to i guess explore you know how was it that you know high growth businesses so really became curious as to you know what does it take to to start and grow a new generation or next generation business how do you actually sustain high growth is it is it actually possible you know there's sums out there that uh, you know most mba students would have calculated that said that most of the businesses that are now the most valuable in the world couldn't grow as fast as they they have and I guess that really is what sort of started to put me on the path towards, uh, you know, I guess some further study. Having sort of, you know, probably overdosed as a as a as a younger guy on study, I ended up uh, managing to get into Stanford, and, and even that in itself was a pretty exciting story. And and the the genesis of that was having dinner with a gentleman by the name of Tom Mendoza, and I had uh, dinner with uh, with Tom, who at that time was the president of a Nasdaq listed company called NetApp, and I'd done my research on Tom, and I said, Tom. What happened in between this point and this point in your career? One day you're a sales executive for a large enterprise IT company. Next, you know, you're a president of a NASDAQ listed company and that out there is your global express jet on the runway. Um, <laughs> can you illuminate sort of what was the change? What was the stepwise change that clearly has occurred in this? And Tom said- what it was, was completing the Stanford executive program. So not surprisingly, I was very intrigued as to essentially that being something which was very relevant for, uh, for me and sort of sought to find out a way as to how I was actually going to get myself there. At this stage, I was still just 28, so I wasn't exactly uh, full of experience and so thought that I would have to get myself a, a Fulbright Scholarship in order to actually achieve that level of, uh, of opportunity. I was uh, unfortunately not successful in gaining a Fulbright Scholarship, gaining instead a Certificate of Merit, but I did on my first application get into to the Stanford Executive Program and to this day, I'm probably one of the, or I am the youngest to, to complete that program in 2015. 2009. The reasons for me wanting to, to, to do that was that uh, you know I felt to that point I was uh, able to essentially operate on an, an Australia level and maybe Australia and working out into uh, to Australia's allies through the through the work that I was doing, but I really wanted to sort of take that stepwise change to to, to go global, yeah. to really sort of I guess seek to immerse myself in the Silicon Valley, with the Silicon Valley obviously being somewhat of the mecca, if you will, for uh, for entrepreneurship, particularly technology entrepreneurship and. and. And also, you know, simultaneously, I guess the heartland of of venture capital and where venture capital was actually, you know, started some now sort of 60 odd years ago with uh, companies such as Fairchild Semiconductor. So so really, that was sort of, you know, what set me on that pathway. And it was for me to be able to create a stepwise change in my career from being domestically focused to truly being globally focused. And then going through that process, which was obviously amazing, you know, the types of people that were uh, the faculty there. So the Gra- Graduate School of Business obviously has amazing faculty, but on the Stanford Executive Program, they put their best. So not only do you have their best faculty, but they also bring in guest lecturers, people like Condoleezza Rice, Carlos goen of Renault-Nissan, Richard Kreisichek from Wells Fargo, uh, Andy Grove, the founder of Intel, you know George Shultz, the former head of state these people were absolutely just amazing people to to be able to to learn from but the people that i actually really gained the most from and still do to this day are the people that i actually studied with so there were people like sanjay Mayor, the sandisk of the founders and uh, and ultimately the ceo when it sold for 19 billion dollars to western digital you know he now is the the ceo of a company called micron and during his tenure he's already 2 yet 2x their uh, their share price and we're not talking about from a low base here we're talking about tens of billions of dollars of value created and these are people that i now am able to call friends and each time i travel overseas there's always that opportunity to to engage with them but there was 83 amazing people that uh that i was able to 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 work with and still have that amazing network and i think that that's where education is really going it's it's not necessarily just about the content because content is now becoming pervasive and much more accessible it's actually about the networks and the relationships and what you actually do to nourish and activate that content which is so vitally vitally important and uh and it was through that experience that I really sort of set my pathway back here to Australia, and to to really ignite the dream of I, that I wanted to, the vision that I wanted to fix venture capital here in Australia.
1: So, when you say fix, so what was? And I've heard um, anything over seven millions really hard to get money from I'd, I'd probably challenge that and say it's hard to get anything <laughs> full stop in Australia and I know a lot of businesses even ASX listeners business always looking to the US or Europe around how they're doing their funding and so when you say it was broken or it needs to be fixed so what is the what was the problem or is it still the problem
0: well look I think that we've got a number of challenges let's just say rather than necessarily just problems so post GFC we've obviously uh, you know seen an evacuation of the alternative investment class we've seen a real flight towards or away from a liquid asset so investing into into say venture capital as a as an example where you've got a a seven to ten year lockup of that uh, of that capital but really what the problem tended to uh, to be and has been illuminated over time is that we here in Australia have just had a very very poor track record historically of venture capital investing so if you were a vintage 2000 through 2007 fund your performance was such that asset consultants would actively recommend not, even if you're able to pique the interest of the the investor, asset consultants would actually actively recommend that they don't pursue venture capital in Australia because we don't have any quality managers. And so, you know, the really the only way in which that uh, that I guess I could see to to I guess fix venture capital was from the grassroots up. So, bringing back the model of a super angel fund, venture capital became uh, became exactly exactly that. Very quickly, I also started to realise the value of the ecosystem which uh, surrounds that. And then, fairly quickly thereafter, we established York Butter Factory or YBF to really provide a home for that activity. And you know, I guess uh, we can. We can circle back on that shortly, but uh, it was about how do we actually create something from the grassroots. The other challenge that we've got here in Australia is is that I think that we're now twenty six years of perpetual economic growth deep, and we've done that relatively without risk. On a global basis, you know, we don't have the, I guess, the the, the same sort of trajectories being, being, I guess, charted by majority of advanced economies and certainly until probably three or four years ago, you know, money in the bank was going forwards, whereas in any other Western economy or advanced economy, money in the bank actually goes backwards traditional assets don't return double-digit returns ie property let's just say so we've got a really unique sort of set of circumstances here where there's actually a quite perverse expectation as to what level of risk do you need to take for what level of reward equally we have you know very very large pension funds or superannuation funds two and a half trillion dollars worth of assets it's one of the largest contiguous sort of pools of funds in the world but it's exposure to venture capital until probably the last last three years, venture capital in Australia has been near zero. So as a lucky country, as essentially a smart country, as essentially a country who prides itself on the fact that we are number one or number two, or certainly in the, on top of the leaderboards of creating papers and patents and all of the, the supply side of innovation, what we're missing is essentially the demand side, the ability to commercialize. And at this point in time, we are dead last in the OECD for commercialization. And so what that means is we've got this enormous latent capacity of human capital and intellectual property in this country through obviously a very, very successful education system and an ability to create, I guess, academic and research product, but our ability to actually commercialize that and see it realize its potential on a global basis that just isn't here yet, and it's not through lack of, I guess, uh, you know, desire. But I think structurally we've kind of set things up in such a way that 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 focus hasn't hasn't been enabled.
1: So if we to take just a, an example of that, you know, if we're on the supply side, as you said, and I've just created a patent for a an amazing device that'll make you look amazing or whatever it does. Are we saying that then this sort of slips into other more established structures, whether it be the US or Europe, and so they're actually getting the benefit of what you said, the commercialization? Okay, so it's not a lack of brilliant thinking. It's more around where that value ends up
0: correct or where that value is being realized and uh, at this point in time there's an enormous as we we're saying latent capacity of that so a lot of its value is actually the potential is not being realized instead we obviously drive a lot of our value in the economy through you know digging things you know out of the ground and sending them offshore unenriched you know obviously we've got a very large services economy an education economy we've got tourism that uh, that obviously supports us in agriculture but you know high-tech manufacturing and you know technology businesses you know these are these are not major sort of you know drivers yet of the economy but Given the, the ingredients that we've got, the supply side, I was saying, we do have the opportunity to do a lot more and to see that potential realized. And in today's day and age, if you're not realizing it really with a global view in mind, then again, I think you're sort of shooting, setting your sights probably too small and certainly too small for, to, to achieve venture capital-derived returns or demanded returns.
1: So I think there's sort of a bit of a theme here that I'm picking up. So jet pilot when you're a little kid and you progress progressed to that, but from the business sort of perspective, you know, I don't know if this is painting the right picture, but running around town, investing in great <laughs> businesses, like isn't this like your dream? Is this your dream job that you sort of, do you just love it? Like looking and appraising businesses because, I, you know, we can probably dig a little deeper into some of the businesses that people may know of that you've sort of invested in from an early stage, but... Yeah, is this your dream job? How
0: did you? Yeah, I guess uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm, um, I'm uh, I've become unemployable over time, so it's my, maybe my only job. But that said, I, I actually regularly sort of say that, that I get the the opportunity and the privilege to work with people who love what they do every day. And I guess it's certainly been well uh, well said that uh, that essentially, if you if you do what you love, then you don't won't work a day in your life. You know, that said as well entrepreneurship is not an easy road it's a very very lonely road it's a very rewarding road but equally on the the other side so you know with passion you know there's two sides to it there's a positive side to it and a and a negative side to it so you know the challenges and the enrichment that's there for you is uh, is enormous but the difficulty is is also there and it's that relativity that's probably, you know, I find to be very nourishing that, you know, you don't know your highest of highs and, until you've got the relative lowest of lows and the challenge and I guess outcome, you know, not just simply about making money, but actually about making impact is again, something that I find to be enormously valuable in uh, in what I have the, the opportunity to do. And the, I guess the impact really doesn't come from an individual. Just as an entrepreneur isn't going to be a successful entrepreneur and create a, a high-growth business if they're on their own. They need to be able to actually create a movement around them, to actually engage others, and motivate them to you know what is their common common cause, what's their common vision, what's their their purposes, their values. How do they come together for people to be able to do something which is which is extraordinary? And I guess in Australia, when we, we are relatively conservative in, I a, think, in a and in business and investing sort of, you know, domain, we do have some challenges because what we're actually asking people to do is to step out of the mediocrity. And, you know, life in Australia is pretty amazing on, on average, but we're actually asking people to do something which is extraordinary. And that doesn't come from just being, being uh, average.
1: So maybe you could run us through... You mentioned we're we're a bit conservative in our investments and you mentioned before you know we have traditionally had a pretty decent yield in asset class or cash for example as an investment which you know send it over to the u.s you get nothing on it so yeah going forward and i'm not really sure where this question's coming from it hasn't come from me yet but it's you know why why are we so conservative if we're the lucky country and is it you know, I've, I've heard anecdotally of one in 10 startups will, you know, lead to some sort of commercial return. And so how does the average, I guess, investor get diversification that allows them to, you know, take that risk or, you know, because one in 10 sounds pretty risky to me. Um, so I certainly wouldn't be putting, in, you know, the whole allocation of whatever wealth I had, you know, how are people sort of getting exposure to this space now?
0: Yeah. Look, I think that it's it's difficult if you're the average investor, let's say a mum and dad investor, then maybe investing into high growth startup businesses directly isn't the best possible game because you know as an angel investor we could we could say you know the the, the risks are extraordinarily high, the capacity of that investor to to essentially follow on as well is probably quite quite challenging you know so i think the ideal investor for, for startups is not necessarily mum and dad investors yep. because the risks are very very high and you know the the lack of diversification which probably occurs you know isn't uh, isn't ideal and you know i say these things on the basis that i'm certainly not a financial planner or a, yes. <laughs> or a lawyer or an accountant but characteristically the the ideal investors for for venture capital are you know Groups like patient capital, groups like superannuation funds, groups like high net worth individuals and large family offices, where they're putting to work a small proportion, relatively small proportion, but when you're talking about billion dollar pools, then it actually becomes material on the on the other side. You know, so I guess that there is, you know, I think, opportunities into the future where you know there has been government incentives put in place to try and in, attract further investment into uh, into the. Sector, but one area where I think that we're probably you know sort of seeing a, a real challenge, and it's being tackled, I guess, through the uh, the Royal Commission, is how um, you don't actually access just equity financing, but also you access debt financing. As an entrepreneur, you can't go to one of the big four banks and say, hey, can I have a business loan? I've got an amazing business plan without them saying, first of all, it's a startup business, no. Or second of all, that uh, you know, if they will issue you the, the loan, that they want some form of guarantees, whether that's personal guarantees plus, you know, I guess, securitize or mortgage over your house, or effectively, maybe they, they extend out to, to your family. And, and I think that that's where we really sort of create a mismatch in that funding environment in that the entrepreneur who's actually sort of you know having a go is actually full risk on like there is there's no in between these people are actually you know making enormous sacrifices in order to try and create an create an impact and uh, and create a new business enterprise through which jobs will be created so you know that's one of the big things that i think that also sort of drives you know what we're doing it's how do we actually create jobs for our kids you know that piece of the puzzle is you know is something that should be keeping people awake at at night because the world is changing, technology is absolutely becoming core to, to most businesses. Yep. And through that, and particularly given our high labour costs, we're going to, to see changing industries and major change in industries and the levels of employment as we move forward and technology. Whether that's AI or whether that's machine learning or whether that's, you know, blockchain distributed ledger, distributed technologies, all of these things are now starting to to, to culminate and we're seeing, you know, accelerating change, particularly in mature industries and they're the ones at the moment that Australia heavily, heavily relies upon.
1: Well, it's great also, I guess, as part of York Butter Factory and for the people that are listening in may not be sort of privy, but you've had sort of the pleasure of dealing with some of these or partnering with sort of the larger corporates here in Australia who are, you know, they're at the forefront of this technology and obviously need to innovate. And um, so it's, you know, and when we did the tour of York York Butter Factory, it was amazing to see some corporates that are in here now who are just... Basically, in the space, and I guess that's creating this innovative or innovative mix. Or do you want to talk about sort of how that's playing out and helping in in sort of the future of work or, or where we're moving?
0: Absolutely. Well, I guess sort of from the top down, it's like people do business with people. So, you know, when engaging with and creating communities of interest, whether it's fintech, whether it's health tech, whether it's you know IoT, whether it's prop tech, property technology, you know, ladies of York in terms of special interest groups, we've created more than a hundred different communities. What we found through the creation of those communities was the entrepreneurs were really missing something. And you know, with Australia being just twenty-four million people, the business to consumer or B2C market is actually relatively small, but our business-to-business market is inordinately well represented. So, what we were finding was that the customers of a B2B company, being the ASX 200 and Fortune 1000 companies, didn't understand what was going up in, on in the startup world, but the startups needed to be able to access those corporates. And so, you know what we tried to do initially was to, to, to close that gap, to bridge yep. that gap, to be a centerpiece, if you will, or a, a, f- a point of fusion between the Startup community and corporate corporations to enable them to actually understand. So you know it was a, almost like a bit of a matchmaking or brokerage kind of service, which which occurred to sort of bring those two things together. But in building the relationship with the corporates, what we we're able to do was to understand some of the the problems which were actually sort of you know keeping them awake at night. Because not every startup business is is perhaps a fully fledged business product. It might be just essentially a piece, a feature, or a, a piece of a puzzle. And it might be something like, you know, responding to know your client requirements in the financial services industry. You know, it's just one little piece, but it's a major enabler of all financial products. You need to be able to know who your client is and to be able to actually do that on an efficient basis. So that's of interest to every player, whether you're a big four bank, whether you're an insurance company, whether you're any form of financial product. So to bring those parties together and be able to, to, I guess, you know, harmonize or um, you know, join join their al- and align them was really where we sort of started. From there, it's really evolved to sort of you know look at other opportunities whereby you know corporates needed to to start to not just simply look at the their core products, which obviously they're you know very mature, but actually what's actually happening out on the horizon. So thinking sort of Horizon Two and Horizon Three, what is what are the changes which are occurring in their industries within their customer segments? How is it that they should be actually able to respond? to those and then in some instances we would actually create brand new companies where we saw opportunities rich opportunities to to work together in some form of partnership and create businesses such as Equiem, such as clover.com.au and also payactive
1: it's yeah it's just like the match made in heaven two different life cycles brought together i look at it as as the toddler or the infant partnered together with sort of you know a, a a man or a woman that's in their prime and together they're sort of you know you bring the structure you bring the process you bring the discipline but then you also bring the energy the excitement and it's just i just see it as such a um a great combination and yeah when i found out you guys were doing it i had to get down here and um, introduce myself um so I know we can't cover everything and, you know, we've got the time that it takes someone to walk to work or walk the dog. But we're sort of coming towards the end of the interview, but I wanted to sort of cover off some of the other items that you're involved in just before we sort of jump into some some of the more structured questions. And you've just sort of recently stepped away as the York Butter Factory. I don't know why I struggle with that word. <laughs> YBF. Uh, YBF, that's easier. Yeah, thank you. YBF Ventures CEO. So maybe you can sort of talk about, you know, what that ride's been like. And looking at your LinkedIn profile, it's quite hard to actually work out what your day job is because <laughs> you're involved in everything. So maybe you can sort of yeah share with us some of the other exciting pieces of, of your yeah, working career that you've got going.
0: Yeah, for sure. So to to be honest, the last 18 months for me has been one of, I guess, setting up for and executing upon a fairly significant transition. So I guess, you know, through the experience of both uh, being a founder and managing partner of Adventure Capital and the, the success of our first fund there, to then really focusing on the establishment and growth of YBF Ventures, to then bringing in our chairman, Mike Smith, um, obviously a very uh, charismatic and uh, and inordinately successful uh, you know, leader and, and source of mentorship for for myself to then actually executing on my transition from YBF Ventures and bringing in one of my Stanford classmates, Farley Blackman, as CEO, and also Niels Martin's, a former GE finance uh, executive, uh, into the role of COO to be able to, to, to replace me. And the reasons for that was that I really felt that I was reaching my limits. I was being stretched, you know, further and further and thinner and thinner across too many things, and, uh, and I was starting to actually lose the, you know, some of my perspective, and sort of in the game that uh, that I guess I'm in, perspective is really really critical. Creativity is really really critical, and to be an executive of a business as successful as YBF Ventures and run a fund and be involved in co-founding a number of uh, new businesses was was too much. So something had to give, and uh, as a result, that's where you know Farley and Niels have now taken over the the leadership alongside my my business partner Darcy Norton to carry YBF Ventures. For forwards into into the future. And deliberately, that's given me the opportunity to focus on two things, which I think that I'm pretty robust and successful at doing. One being investing, and the second one being originating, so founding and forging founding teams in you know, fairly disruptive sort of ways. So, whether that's essentially companies like Equium, which I co founded with Lorenz Grollo and Matt O'Halloran, and then brought through in the first couple of months, Gabrielle McMillan, through to clover.com.au and also PayActive which are both disruptive within the financial services sector but where the model was evolved to actually sort of look at how do we actually forge that founding team and then support it to to success. And align it with the right partners. So, people to to create a solution and partners to create a solution where you've got an unfair competitive advantage. And, say, if you were to, to, to partner with somebody or a group which is already eminent within property management and property development, being Equiset with Lorenz Grolo, then you're going to, to be able to get access to effectively, you know, I guess, you know, reputation. You need the reputation, you need the market access, you need the access to capital, you need the access to, to, to market in order to actually create something which is disruptive and to do it on a credible basis. And then I guess on the investment side, it's actually sort of starting to to look at and something that I'm working on right now is is how do we actually fund startups better? Because the reality is even with the $1.3 billion that's been uh, committed to venture capital in the last sort of 12 to 18 months, founders in this country are undercapitalized they 're not able to get the growth capital that they actually need to successfully grow, or if they can get access to to the capital, then the dilution which occurs to those founders makes it almost a it starts to disincentivize them you know from actually maintaining the, the the rage that's needed to be disruptive to actually be extraordinary and particularly if these companies are sort of at that series a series B level, then they need to be able to access something that actually accelerates them and uh, and I think two products are going to to really be exciting in that space. The first one being venture debt being available in this country, because we know that the banks are not going to fulfill that. But there is definitely an appetite for a fixed income sort of product, which has got an equity, I guess, kicker on the back end. And the second one being how we actually start to manage secondaries in this country. So in that case, it's like the founders have large stakes in this business. You know, They're not really earning you know, market wages, but they have perhaps millions of dollars worth of equity in their company. How is it that we actually enable them them to take a little bit of that money off the table, so that they can actually, you know, eat well. They can go on a holiday. That their wife knows that essentially that, there's a, there's a, there's, that this is all worth it. And the other critical thing is, how does that founder, now successful founder of a multi-million dollar business, how do we actually get them to focus one hundred percent of their energy? On growing this business to be extraordinarily successful and not be focused on I guess what you would say to be how they're going to pay for their kids school fees or uh, you know any other sort of financial stress which is really just a a complete distraction
1: yeah amazing okay so venture debt so this is something new that you're sort of chatting before this and it's 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 typically been sort of you know your, your traditional venture capital and you're saying that you know, some people are getting turned away, whether that's people's appetite to risk and you know, how much they want to put in and the terms that they're offering. But how does the debt, how does venture debt work? Because, you know, if I go to a bank now and ask them, hey, can I have a couple million dollars, I'm going to build a, a new online marketplace, they'll say, great, Dave, give us the deed to your house. So how is it different, I guess, in, yeah. in this scenario?
0: Yeah. So in this scenario, I guess this is this is something which has been done in the Silicon Valley for the best part of uh, thirty years. And uh, in the Silicon Valley, venture debt makes up somewhere in the range of twenty to thirty percent of all venture financing, which occurs within that that market. So we're talking about tens of billions of dollars per annum, which is actually put to work in a discipline wow. which you know demonstrates very very low loss rates because of the way in which that the, the the loans are, are structured and the way in which that they actually accelerate you know growth and incentives. Incentivize uh, you know the the founders to to really sort of you know drive harder to ch- to achieve their their success. So, in terms of the types of companies that this is suitable for, you really need to to be a post-revenue company. You need to actually have the the revenue from which you're obviously able to service the interest and then into the future, you need to be able to service both the principal and the interest across the life of the loan. And generally, the the other thing is this is not a competitor to venture capital in any way. This is about being extraordinarily complementary to venture capital. So, when a Series A round of, say, $5 million goes in, perhaps a venture debt loan of up to $5 million is, is actually put to, to work at the same time. What, that, what happens there is essentially instead of diluting 100% of what they would, they would only dilute one half the early investors, presuming that the, the founders don't have the capacity to actually participate in that, say, Series A round. That gives them the ability to obviously grow a lot faster and be incentivized to essentially work for the equity that they, they retain through this process. Yeah amazing. There is obviously other than the principal and interest that they they do actually give up a small proportion of their their, their companies in the form of equity warrants. Those equity warrants basically are a very small fraction though of what a straight venture capital or venture equity round would actually demand. So, you know, this is a, a complement to venture capital. It's about how we actually work closely with the founders to have the right equity and debt mix and also, you know, enable them to uh, to retain as much of the company and be incentivized for, for all of their sacrifice and accelerate them towards their. Their, their success, and I think that the other piece of the puzzle is investors are finding this extremely uh, attractive. Given that uh, you know the funds that sit behind it are a five-year fixed-term fund, there is fixed income-like characteristics, so you're actually getting payments across the life cycle of, uh, of their investment. And then secondarily to that, they're actually being able to to access this equity kicker. So they're getting the, the access to the alpha as well as a very, very strong yield. And then the duration risk on these loans as well, given that they're generally going to be two and three years is uh, and fully amortizing. So then what we're having there is just a one and a half year duration risk, which really means that the, the money which is at risk is actually quite attractive for the yield which which it's actually providing.
1: Fantastic. Thanks for sharing. It gives me a lot of perspective. I thought it was sort of one or the other, but it's, yeah, interesting to know that obviously you can not dilute down as much and go the venture debt way as well or uh, on its own so yeah thanks for the context so just conscious of time and i know that i could definitely talk about this all day but i know you've got to get back to your many many things that you do so just a quick question around advice was there advice you received or wish you received i guess through one of the parts of your fascinating journey
0: yeah look i think that uh, you know i I wish and, I, and I've been on this journey myself, but effectively that um, early in my career it was all about very much the hard systems or hard data and and effectively not trusting in intuition. I think over time, essentially understanding soft systems and understanding ecosystems and influence, that's really been, um, you know, something and that, that I've really gained and then therefore trusting intuition and not, not ignoring intuition is, is, is something to, to really look at. I think the, that being ambitious is, uh, is is really critical, and not to be ashamed of that. Here in Australia, we do have the tall poppy syndrome. I think that that's really a, a scourge on this uh, this nation and this nation's potential. You know, we are a highly capable uh, community of uh, of entrepreneurs here in Australia, and able to to make impact on a global basis. We should be proud of doing that.
1: Fantastic. Thanks for sharing. And just was there some advice, advice, we've just done advice, was there some habits that you could share as well that you think have helped you in your um, whether it's day-to-day or um, long-term goals?
0: Yeah, look, I think that uh, everyone talks about balance, but but I think that, you know, don't over-program your schedule. So, always live, leave time to be actually able to get to, to thinking time. Sometimes that's really, really hard. So, actually then having pursuits which take you away from the work is critically important. And whether that's, for me, things like mountain biking or kite surfing or yoga or float tanks, you know, even meditation, to be honest, it's sort of, you know, you need to create that space in which to effectively, you know, think and be calm of mind in order to to make good decisions and exercise good judgment and, and access creativity you know that's probably the you know the the, the good thing like you know just to work all of the time, you can be guaranteed of one thing that uh, that you ultimately will burn out. And the, the costs of burnout are far greater than the costs of managing it through uh, through life.
1: So the quote, I know you've, you're a Marcus Aurelius Aurelis fan, so do you want to fire off the quote that sort of resonates with you?
0: Yeah, for sure. So the quote is, the universe is change. Our life is what our thoughts make it.
1: And why is it that that one sort of resonates with you?
0: As you go go on, that you know per- perception and reality, and you know your thoughts and the power of your your thoughts. And I think there's a there's a lot of opportunity to to, to dream things, and it's only when they actually become acted upon that uh, that they make the the change and they make the difference. So, but the seed is always going to be that thought you know, and I guess in the entrepreneurial context it's sort of like you know ideas are not worth anything those thoughts are not necessarily worth anything but it's actually what you do with them that makes all of the the impact and that impact can be significant if you act and follow through with the actions that are required to to make it realized
1: yeah fantastic, thank you. thanks for the context uh, and just the last question we're on the home stretch now, and I'll have you back to your day job. So the last question which is around a book is there a book that you know has helped you or that you could recommend for uh, the listeners to pick up and have a read of
0: yeah for sure so um you know most recently i've just finished and really enjoyed ray dalio's book called principles it really is a, a fantastic story of, uh, of somebody who's shaped uh, you know modern financial markets uh, the hedge fund business and uh, and really has done a great job to uh, to now you know, share and give that back and uh, i think sets a sets an example that uh, i think many would like to follow
1: yeah, it's funny. It's, it's and it's not till recently that Ray's sort of started, you know, presenting and writing books. And I guess he doesn't have the profile of a Warren Buffett, but his actual investment histories and performance is actually higher than Warren. So it's yeah, it's a fantastic book too. I've got that on the the bed stand at the moment, <laughs> sending me to sleep every night. But it's yeah, amazing how he can make things so simple with his principles. So yeah, thanks for sharing. And just one last question before we get you back on the road. Um, people listening in, they're resonating with what you're saying. Uh, they want to find out about you or I won't list them all, any of the ventures that you're sort of involved in. How do they go about uh, contacting you and, and learning more?
0: Yeah, look, I guess I'm uh, I'm active on LinkedIn. So you can certainly uh, find me on uh, on LinkedIn and also on uh, on Twitter. You know, I'm more than happy to connect with people that are looking to, to change the world. And, uh, and usually the best way is uh, either via one of those or perhaps even via uh, YBF Ventures, where I uh, base myself out of when uh, when not travelling,
1: yeah, which is uh, yeah, fantastic co-working space here in the heart of Melbourne, which I'm also um, yeah going to be frequenting uh, a, a lot more over the next coming weeks as well. Um, yeah, so thank you. So thanks thanks to Mike and and Joe for the the introduction, and it must be fantastic to have Mike Smith. We we're lucky to have him on the show recently, probably about a month or so ago in terms of episodes. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what having a mentor like that in in Mike as your chairman here at ybf i mean yeah just very jealous and <laughs> congratulations and i know it was sort of a, a longer term strategy but yeah thanks for the intro and yeah, um, yeah thanks for coming on the show i really appreciate it
0: my pleasure looking forward to inspiring the next generation
1: thanks Jew. and for everyone else we'll have the links up on the mentor and tune in again next week for another great show
0: the mentor list specializes in interviews with top business minds gather their advice for your career this is the mentor list